You're listening to Cultivation Elevated, hosted by Michael Williamson, where we discuss vertical farming and the future of cannabis and food production. You'll be learning key insights for vertical farming success from leading industry operators, growers, and executives. If you're a grower or owner looking to optimize your existing or new indoor cultivation facility, or anyone looking to cultivate more in less space, we've got you covered. Cultivation Elevated, sponsored by Pip Particulture. Hey, we're out here in Alameda, California, in the East Bay, and we're here with Beard Bros and Anders Peterson of Pip Horticulture. And I just want to say thanks for getting together with us while we were in town. Absolutely, appreciate it. We appreciate you having us out. Yeah, well, your story is really interesting, and that was kind of part, I wanted to learn from my side. I kind of, you know, you hear stuff, and you think you know the real story, but I kind of wanted to hear kind of your evolution into the current business that you operate today and kind of what you were doing before that. Beer Bros has, has definitely had an evolution. We originally cultivators from the East Coast arrived out in LA around 11. And we're known as cultivators mostly up until about 2015 or so. And we started, we started aggregating or putting together news that we thought was relevant for the cannabis industry that we are participating in in LA. People really seemed to like it online and on our social media, so we kind of expanded that. In 2018, we actually started a website and began putting out our own, our own content. And the original intention was just to promote the, the brand itself? No, I mean, not, not even really to promote the brand. It, it actually spawned initially from, as he was saying, uh, we were trying to get legal in the city of LA. A lot of our cultivator friends, extractor friends, were all trying to navigate that process and there wasn't a lot of good information then and what was out there wasn't verifiable and being in, in the industry we had a different perspective on it and could kind of vet that for people so we got that reputation of trusted information so it kind of started in a local fashion in the LA SoCal area and then it broadened out to more of just a general news in California and then around the US and eventually international as well. It's pretty incredible so you guys were like hey there's a void in the market you know, the noise and story and dialogue around cannabis isn't necessarily true to type because it is, there's a lot to sift through. And how, that was one of my questions for you guys is like, how do you sift through all this information and decide like, what are we going to, what are we going to highlight or or raise awareness to? Right. At first it was somewhat simple because it was 2015, late 15, early 16, leading up to the vote for Prop 64, which we were not in favor of, but we could see the writing on the wall that the general population in California didn't really understand that there was things in it that weren't going to be good for the industry that had been emerging in California for 20 years. So that in 16 led into it, but then it became, when we realized people were liking it and it became more than just trying to help our friends get licensed, it became a situation where we just felt like we had insider's information, so to speak, on the industry because we were working within it. We weren't just writing about something, we were living it. Well, and, and at that time, there really weren't many other news outlets putting out information. I mean, Weed Maps has, had been around, Leafly had been around, but they were filling a void of very introductory level cultivation topics and cannabinoid science, you know, and kind of like building up that base. But there really wasn't any good current news day to day Mrs. Pre MJ Biz, Cannabis Business Times, some of the other news outlets out today. So you guys really did fill a void at that time. There wasn't anything out. I mean, as a California cannabis guy myself from Prop 215, I heard about you guys in 2015, 2016, and kind of I was running a Prop 215 business, getting ready for Prop 64, 
and your news outlet was a kind of a breath of fresh air because it gave me updates without me having to scour local municipality websites and you know try and find the information so it was i guess i was one of the target market back then yeah and we appreciate you for that it really just became there was a hundred stories but two or three of them were relevant and we were able to, to look through those and being in the industry and trying to learn all the, the laws and the new regulations coming out, we were able to pretty quickly identify which ones were real stories and which ones were clickbait. And obviously we were trying to inform our friends, so we stayed away from all the clickbait. Unless we were just making fun of it, that was always fun to do. It kind of reminds me of the way you just described what you do, reminds me of the early forum days, you yeah. know, of being a cultivator, trying to find good information. I spent thousands of hours on THC Farmer, IC Mag, you know, all of these forums and you couldn't reliably find the answer to what you were looking for. And I think that's what you guys were trying to do. Yeah. And I think that's the key we were able to unlock is we were able to parse through that. And not only that, usually that back then, as you said, there was no MJ Biz, there was no Benzinga and Forbes really focusing on the cannabis industry. So you were getting those things as news reports from local news and, and other things like that and needing to give the industry perspective that wasn't there because it was just coming from a, a field reporter or an anchor in the newsroom that was just reading off of a script. Sure. Yeah. It's so interesting when people take passion and turn it into a business. So at what point, you know, because it sounds like it was passion-based first and it was like, no, this is a need. We want it. You wanted it for your own knowledge, but then you were like, I'm going to share it with like, you know, the people, the community, because there was a lot of opportunity for elevation. But like you said, there was no clear path. So like the more information you had back then, maybe the greater chances of you trying to actually figure out how to move the, the you know, the pieces forward. But at what point does that go from being uh, like a passion project to saying like, wait a minute, I think we have something here. I think this is going to be a business. What? How does that transition happen? We well, it was actually somewhat forced upon us. We our, our intent was just to continue being cultivators and keep growing and providing good products to the market. But living in Los Angeles and with Prop 64 passing in 2016, with the implementation of it at the beginning of 18, we weren't one of the pre-ICO Measure M. So we knew we were not transitioning. There, there was no path for beer bros to continue to cultivate. So luckily we had started that. You know, a lot of times you do things and in retrospect, you say, wow, that was very fortunate for us to be in the right place at the right time. So we realized that we had to lean into the media. And, it, and at the time, it wasn't meant to create a media or a news company. It was simply to keep beer bros name relevant and on people's minds. Because for years we had been in social media on people's minds. It was usually, it was, primarily for beautiful flower photos, right? And news, but so we just made that pivot to it and it became a necessity to be a business because we could not continue to cultivate. And at no point were you like, I'm leaving LA? No, we didn't. We had spent enough time. We, we had been there for about seven years by that time and we're really so pretty kind established. Of, we were established, we were ingrained. And honestly, we like LA and California. And you knew yeah. what a crazy market it was gonna be. It, it, we did know, well, uh, we didn't know how crazy. We knew it was gonna be crazy, but it's proved to be even more crazy. Yeah, there's definitely been times we've been fortunate to not be in the, the cultivator side of it. And, and there's times I've, I really wish we were in the garden more often. Yeah. How many hours goes into like, I, it just seems like there's so much information these days. And unless, you know, are using some kind of AI resource, like I just, what does that sifting process look like? And, and what's the best way to validate? And how do you kind of, I guess, make decisions on, there's so much noise in the space, like, what gets acknowledged it's and like what you're pheno hunting for the yeah what, how do you select <laughs> yeah i it's really just become more of a familiarity with the people i mean it's 
I say this sometimes, like a lot of times it's not just that we're interpreting the news, that we're sometimes in the news because we've become known in California as cultivators and as a news source that's trusted. So it's been a fine line though. It's a very tricky thing to do, but as far as finding the stories, it's really just the current events and then putting our particular, I don't want to say spin, it's just our particular opinion on it because it's different than other people that aren't in the industry. From a, through a cultivator's lens. Yeah, cultivator and then, and quite honestly, with through the uh, adaptation into media, it's just become even more than just a cultivator. We've, we gain knowledge on a lot of things because people reach out to us. So when you become this trusted source of news, a lot of times the news actually comes to you. People will reach out to you with things that they feel are going to be important. And then the process comes in of, well, you know, how important is this? Is it something that, that it affects, you know, just a small area or is it something that's a national or international? You guys get a lot of probably interesting direct messages, I imagine, of people trying to, you know, who are like, I want this to be known, but like, I'm not the person that's going to blow this whistle. I guess, is there a valid, like, how do you validate some of this stuff? Because I imagine a lot of people are just trying to throw shade different directions on different people and maybe take advantage of your platform potentially. Well, I, I would say there are definitely people looking to do that, but I think the, the way we've always carried ourselves leans people to understand that's not going to be the case, that we're, we're not the ones to fall for the clickbait. We're not the ones to just take somebody's side. And, and the fact that we do know so many people on all different sides of the industry, somebody from the legacy side isn't going to tell us something about a corporate person that we're not going to be able to go vet and, and fact check ourselves. No. So I think it, it lends to people not doing that. And when they do, it, it usually blows up in their face. Well, and yeah, and, and the fact that we've, we've put out what we feel is honest, very unbiased news kind of i joke about this it kind of keeps a little force field around us like people realize we do create content for people but we don't lie right we're not going to lie on our media so it kind of keeps people away that would try to take advantage of us because we can pretty quickly see through those lies and it's just a it's pretty much a dead end so it's been this nice little the reputation that we built has kind of put us into a i don't want to say a bubble but a nice little niche to where we're not people don't especially try to take advantage of us like you think they would. One of the one of your recent posts that hit home for me and I think hit home for everybody because I saw it get reposted so much was like, there is no SOP for culture. And yeah. when we travel around and we talk to cultivators and it's interesting when you get one-on-one -on -one with these cultivators and it doesn't matter if it's one of the bigger MSOs or a small craft grower, a lot of them are dealing with the same struggle as they are trying to build culture in their space, but they're trying to do it in like Maryland or New Jersey or something like that. And you know, they'll, a lot of the people who are working in some of these more consolidated states like California and Colorado, as when they couldn't find a home, like let's say in LA, well, they said, I love this plant. You know, I love California too, but you know, I can't work here, but I have an opportunity in Pennsylvania or something like that. And so you know, we meet a lot of people with California, Colorado, Washington, Oregon roots who are working in these other emerging states, but that's their biggest struggle is trying to build culture in a state where historically they don't have culture. And a lot of the employees that start with these companies, they don't have any, maybe they're passionate about cannabis, but because of where they grew up, they just don't have any real cultivation or experience. And so it's just a really, culture is such a hard thing to shape. And I think it's really overlooked. It's actually funny, cause that's one of the silver linings, I think to Prop 64. 
and how transient California is as a state is that it allowed a lot of people that were here in California that didn't see a path to go back to their states. And it's not bearing fruit now, but I have a feeling in you know five to 10 years, it will bear fruit because it's the right kind of people that will emerge into positions of leadership within their own states. Yeah, we've, we've talked about this a lot. The, the reality of it is it's just how it played out. The West Coast in general, Oregon, Washington, California, Arizona, they've always, well, maybe not so much Arizona, but they've always been very liberal with their cannabis. And on the East Coast, absolutely not. That's why we left the East Coast. We didn't want to catch a 10-year charge for having a four-lighter in a spare bedroom, sure. which is what was happening in the early 2000s on the East Coast. So I, I always tell people that it's not that people from California are attempting to come take anything from them. The East Coast just never had the ability, other than a very underground culture, they didn't have it out in the open. I mean, California had Prop 64 was what, 1996? And then there was dispensaries. Yeah, two, yeah 215. And then by 2003 and four, people were putting up dispensaries. So, I mean, you just didn't have that on the East Coast. Um, you know, we, we've got that too. Oh, you guys are coming to the East Coast. Well, first of all, we grew up there. But secondly, we're not trying to take anything. We're just trying to add. Let's, let's all do better. Let's all rise up. I think it's somewhat coming full circle too, because people who were interested in cannabis and this plant in other parts of the, of the, state, of the country migrated to California and the Emerald Triangle for the love of the plant like and built this culture. <laughs> And I think that's great because it still it brought different perspectives and different skill sets to the industry here in California. And now we're seeing a migration of these people going back to their home and it's spreading that culture and knowledge that was built here and kind of innovation that was started here. And it's yeah. also funny to see how much more accelerated the timeline is on the East Coast, watching yeah. whether it's from a business or a culture's perspective of them having, you know, being non-existent to the levels that they're able to bring it. And even just the education and knowledge level of the consumers yeah. where out here, you know, everybody's understood THC has kind of been the driving factor for a very long time. East Coast cultivator, I mean, East Coast consumers are going into dispensaries asking for things high in myrcene, high in karyophyllene, asking for specific effects and specific results that they're looking for. So seeing the market mature that way has been really exciting to watch. Well, it was interesting too. A trend I've seen is, you know, back in 15, it always seemed like the East Coast was three to five years behind in like genetics and cultivation techniques and just new trends in cannabis. But with this hyper-popularity of social media, that timeline is shrinking. They're getting up to speed on the California culture and trends much faster. Even in now, the, the gap is between United States and Europe. Like yeah. we were noticing yeah. in Berlin a few weeks ago, the hot genetics out there were the symbiotic stuff from a few years ago. Like, yeah, the early punch crosses. Punch. Yeah. And you know, that would have been, you know, they would have been a few years back previously, but now they're only a few years behind, yeah. like in those trends. Yeah. I think social media. It's very interesting to us <laughs> with the with the state of the California cannabis market right now, the biggest advantage to being a known brand in California is the fact that you can go work somewhere else that actually has a better system for a business owner. California yeah. is a brand. Like yeah, as you is. travel internationally and even before cannabis when I was a child and I'd go to Italy to go visit my family and like California is an international brand. It, it people visualize it and they have this image of what it is. Yeah. And we were in Berlin and people are actually naming their companies like basically spinoffs of the word California because it. California to them is yeah. known as like the pinnacle 
of the best right. quality of cannabis yeah. you can find. Everyone wants well, California weed. Yeah. All the menus in Amsterdam at the coffee shops, half that product is from yeah. California. The gene- I mean, we've More been around, half. we haven't been around <laughs> the world, but we've been around the country and California genetics absolutely rule every corner of genetics and cannabis. Will that be the case forever? No, because people start developing different things on the East Coast that'll catch on. But for now, California had that 20 or 30 year head start on genetics above everybody else. The other thing I point out, which a lot of times people don't even think about, Hollywood. LA will always be the epicenter of cannabis. People in the Bay will argue that, but I'll tell you why LA will always be the epicenter of it, because Hollywood. It's just that simple. The only reason we even know about what OG Kush is because Be Real smoked it and went on tour and spread it around and talked about it. Otherwise, people wouldn't even know what OG Kush was. It wouldn't even be called OG Kush. I'll give it to you. The, the import hash that came in the 70s and 80s first came to Hollywood. Yeah. All, all the Afghani, the Moroccan. The- well, the money's there, too. So the people that can, the people that can afford the exotic things are in Los Angeles as well. But, you know, and it, nothing against any other part of the country. It's just you can't take away Hollywood. Hollywood's broadcast into everybody's living room across the world every single night. You can't compete with that. Yeah, they're like our modern day demigods, right? And so like if you can get them to accept something as like this is good or great, everybody falls in line. So there's a big push there. We saw that like I think that's talked about in like Cocaine Cowboys as an example. They're like, oh, celebrities, doctors, lawyers, like and then all the dominoes fall after that. To go back to something that you said, you know, I was always curious, like there's so many growers in California and you're one of a handful of growers that I know that's born and raised here but a lot of people came here to grow. Um, I'm always curious, like how many actual like California natives, I wonder, are actually in the state as far as grows go? I have no idea. I I don't think anyone does, but you know, it's- The way way I look at it though, is that like, maybe this is because I'm biased being from the Bay Area, like in growing up in this culture, but this is kind of the big leagues here. It's the biggest cannabis market in the world. And, if you can survive here and succeed here in this market, when the federal walls come down, you're going to win. I mean, that's why MSOs can't survive here right now. I was just going to say, the example is the MSOs leaving. (laughs) They can't, California is too refined of a market for MSO bullshit. That's right. That's really what it comes down to. Yeah, the consumer's too sophisticated. Consumer's too good for that MSO bullshit. Yeah, because even even though they don't have the SOPs, it's all been passed down generationally, as we were talking about earlier. You know, you starting out when you're, you know, very young in the trim crew, doing things like that, and that knowledge is passed down, and those traditions and those customs are are actual SOPs. They're just called something different. Yeah. Well, we always had SOPs, but they went from, like, burned notebooks to whiteboards that you could erase quickly. So putting information on computer was always something that was just so crazy to us coming especially coming from the east coast because on the east coast you didn't even tell your best friend you grew the pot you just said you knew a guy i know a guy well and And i also has like a fake name yeah and i always will stand by something that ivan from jungle boy said once was i can give you the sop or the recipe it's how you execute it as a team and and day-to-day show up that actually produces fire You know, and that's where I think a lot of these MSOs are falling short is the passion and love for the plant doesn't come through in the product because they can buy an SOP all they want, but the recipe is only half the equation. So you you mean those stolen SOPs don't work? That's right. I've been burned by people, you know, like take the SOPs and they they think they got the secret sauce. It's honestly about passion. It really comes down to passion. You have to, to create the highest level of this product, you have to just love that product. You have to love that plant and you have to put the time into it. It's just that simple. And when you're just turning rooms, it's not there. You, you know, I'm curious about something. Being cultivators, moving into media, do you, fi- were you finding yourself 
excited? Like, I guess, how do I phrase that? Were you pleased when you moved into media that you enjoyed it more than you thought? Or was it something that, like, you weren't interested in at first? Like, I don't, is that, how do I phrase that? Like, no, were we excited? Well, I'll be honest with you. We're cultivators at heart. So not cultivating is, it's still a, it's still a dagger in the heart, right. not having a nice big facility somewhere. I mean, I've got an entire safe full of genetics that I, I can't even start popping until I know I'm going to have two years somewhere, right? Because you can't really do correct hunts without spending the right amount of time. So we just keep collecting genetics, but they... But like, do you enjoy it more, I guess, than you thought? I was just going to say, the funny part is there's days that you do and then there's days that you don't. I mean, it's, um, it's definitely not as, even as unpredictable as cultivating is, media side is way more unpredictable because in cultivation, you're, you're already forward planning three, four, six months, a year out. On the media side, sometimes you're doing that with clientele, but a lot of times it's it's churn and burn of clients, and it's somebody that may be a client this day and is insolvent the next day because it's the cannabis industry. <laughs> There's many days I wish I was just cultivating cannabis instead of actually having to stay up on all the media and keep up on it and, and create the content. I mean, like like he said, it's not where you're just you're. I mean, not trying to take anything away from cultivating. It's very difficult to do it at a high level, but. It's predictable. Like you say, we always work backwards. Like when's the harvest date? Okay, back to, do we have to do this to get to this harvest date? So everything's planned out for months. And with cannabis news, it's like, oh my God, this happened at 5.30 today and shit, now I gotta do something with it. I mean, I think what, I think a media company would be way harder than a cultivator. I mean, look at how many cultivators are out there. How many cannabis media companies are out there that are any good? Well, and the other thing is, in, instead of inwardly focusing on yourself and all of your own practices, you're literally focusing on the entire industry and what's going on at that particular time that's the most relevant topic, which, which causes you to pay attention to local, pay attention to state, pay attention to national, pay attention to what's going on in, in European countries like Ukraine just announcing that they're going to push a medical bill through while they're in the middle of a war with Russia, like, like all of these different facets that you need to be paying attention to, and you don't have a control all, over all of those things. You, inside of a facility, you can control the majority of <laughs> there's things. some godplex uh, <laughs> stuff going on in cultivation yeah but it, yeah it's it, the the reality is it's they're both a creative process but just a very vastly different creative process and to me the i like the constant growth and the constant yield and the harvest and seeing the fruits of your labor with the cultivation and, and that feeling of accomplishment of not only yourself but as you were talking about operating within a team, team. and being able to have that team you know, pull a room down, flip it in one day, get the next room of plants in there, get it back on its cycle, get it, and, and everything flows correctly. And, you know, of course, then you forget to turn off the reservoir and you end up with <laughs> 400 gallons of water on the floor and you hate everybody. And, you know, then the cycle repeats itself. If you haven't flooded, you ain't growing. It's that simple. There's their next shirt. If you haven't flooded a room, you ain't growing. Yeah, that's like the, if you're not rubbing, you're not racing kind of comment, right? right? If you don't know what this is with a shot vac image, you're not a grower. <laughs> yeah, that's, I like that one. Yeah, at least the issues that come up so. in cultivation are somewhat predictable. Yeah. You know, power goes out, blow a compressor, flood a room, whatever. You know, you can at least plan contingencies for that. When it comes to media, it's like yeah. there's so much there's crazy stuff happening in the cannabis lawsuits industry. Lawsuits getting dropped at 6, 6 p.m. Yeah, and it's like <laughs> oh, you, you cannot okay. predict this stuff. And, How do you take time off? 
we unfortunately don't take a lot of time home. Not that cultivators really do either. No, you know, some no. do, but like not really because it's just this living, breathing organism. And now you have this living, breathing yeah. monster. It's, it's this really weird thing. It's called the cannabis vacation where you go on vacation to MJ BizCon and you <laughs> yeah. go on vacation to we... MJ Unpacked and you go on vacation to the best of event in New York or you go to Spanibus or ICBC. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. that's your vacation is you try to get in a little bit of tourist stuff while you're dealing with a three or four day conference. Well, and, and honestly, you know, as a small company in cannabis, the, the, the fight is not even remotely over. We're trying to be beat up by, by Goliath daily, right? So, I mean, it's just this, you don't have, you don't have time to take off, right? It's almost like you, you feel like if you take time off, you're going to, I'm going to be that step behind. I'm just going to have to make up extra steps. So why take any time off? That oh, makes sense. Do you think that there's, you know, there's this weird balance of like, you have all these wonderful cultivators, but a lot of times they don't have the financial backing to actually do the thing. We see that obviously capital in the space has been pulled back quite a bit in the last, you know, 12 months, 18 months, however you want to look at that. But the, the suits or the chads or the brads, whatever you want to call them, and cultivators, whether they're legacy or been operating in like a, a license compliant state for a while, they somehow kind of need each other. Like they need to figure out how that works. I guess if there is a question in what I just said, it's, is it possible? Yeah. Well, no, actually, great question. Mm -hmm. I have an answer for it. We've been talking about this for a while. There, what, what, there's, you almost can't be in cannabis without some type of capitalization. Now, the only way you could is, for instance, somebody like ourselves that has built a name over the last 10 years, and our name means something without the capital behind it. So we've always talked about you're going to have to have some type of business acumen along with some type of cultivation and culture acumen. So where is that? Is it 50-50? Is it 60-40? Is it 70-30? It really, in my opinion, just depends on the situation you're in as to what part of that ratio you're working with. Well, and I think what you have is the small brands and the legacy people trying to give up just enough control to get capitalized to potentially maybe do their own thing. And then you have the corporate side looking to pay just enough money to try to extract that knowledge from you until you're not useful anymore and then push you to a side. So I kind of look at it as like a race. Can they learn enough about our side before we figure out enough about their side or safe banking goes through and we don't need as much of the corporate Chad private equity m money to come in because there's SBA loans and there's conventional funding and financing options available. And, and that's what this kind of is, is it's, it's this delicate dance of, yeah, you do need some of that, but you kind of want to stay yeah. true to your own morals and your ethics and, and the base of who you are as a person, a company, and a brand. It's a tug of war right now. It's rough. And, you know, you guys had mentioned you guys were social equity applicants at one point. When I look at a lot of social equity groups out there, they can't get capitalized to do the project. Social equity, I hate to even say this, but social equity is somewhat of a setup. So... In concept, it's fantastic. We should be rewarding the people that were most put against in the war on drugs. Completely agree with that. Problem is the implementation because most of the implementation I feel has people's best interests at heart, but then you get these outside people that come in and want to manipulate it. And they don't make, they're not making the social equity regulations or whatever you want to call the, the structure of it. They're not making it solid enough to actually help the people, right? And then on top of that, one of the things somebody pointed this out to me just six months ago, and it completely made sense. If you're going to look for capital and you have to give 51% of your business to somebody who had a conviction, but has no business experience, and has never run a business, a multi-million dollar business, you can't find capital to get a social equity license and, and establishment financed. 
So it's just this, it's this constant running in place, in my opinion. Well, and the investors of today, they've learned some hard lessons in the last five years. You know, a lot of people thought it was like this rainbow pot of gold thing. It's cannabis, you know, gold. Money grows on trees. I haven't heard the word like green rush in a while. Yeah. Nope. <laughs> yeah. They got the memo. Yeah. Well, people got burned. And so, you know, now, just like the sophisticated end user is evolving, the investors have evolved a lot too, and they know, no, I, I didn't see a return on this investment. Well, like they've last learned year. that, I think that the tech bubble in Silicon Valley spoiled a lot of investors to a one to two year ROI. And they're realizing that cannabis is not the tech industry. It's not a tech bubble. It's farming at the end of the yep. day. Mm -hmm. Plants take time to grow. And this is a longer term, three to five year type of investment deal, you know, and there's volatility in it. And it's People are learning those lessons finally. You can say it all you want until you're blue in, in the face. In, in some aspects, you could turn that around to be a good thing because they're getting burned, but it's because they were trying to skimp and they weren't bringing in maybe some legacy people that they should have. So you could kind of turn it around to they, they got burned, but now they realize that they need us as well, right? So it used to be just this big attitude of, we don't need you, right? We can steal your SOPs and, and we can set it up and it's just a plant, right? Anybody can grow it, right? Like it's an orchid or it's a, or it's a shilling or a petunia or something. Yeah, it, it totally, and, it, and it's never going to be a CPG. You, people can call it a CPG all you want, but a living, breathing plant that can change from one crop to the next, in my opinion, is never going to be a widget. You can't get it into the specs. It's a, a widget would fall into. I mean, we've seen people from some of the biggest name companies that we won't name from like CPG products, beverage products, who just thought like, and they work for big companies that make real money. They thought they could transition into the space and like, you know, really elevate the thing. And they just, they usually fall flat on, they're like, I, I, and you hear all the time, like, I had no idea what a difficult business this is. Well, I mean, for us guys that have been cultivating for decades now, we are MacGyver. Like, we had to do everything ourselves. You didn't hire AC guys, you had to figure it out yourself, or you had a friend. You didn't hire a plumber, you did it yourself, right? You didn't, you had to do these things. So I think where the corporate people completely underestimated the legacy market was, is we will pivot, we will survive. We've, we've been hunted down, we had to hide, we had to do all of our own work, and we're still here. Creative and scrappy, that's what yeah. I always think of, like we'll find a way, like. Yeah. But on that same note, I've also seen um, where a lot of legacy cultivators that they typically, they, they didn't have a lot of experience working on a team, they were more of a solo act. And then also because they built everything the way that they liked it, and they weren't general contractors or, yeah. or um, you know, journeymen electricians, they also brought some pretty bad habits into commercial design and operations. And so I think we've seen a big wave of that kind of get washed out. You just brought it right back. How, how far do we, how, how much on each side do we need to work together? Because yeah. like you said, the mm -hmm. legacy brought some bad things in. Obviously corporate brings some bad things in. The, the idea is to get together and get rid of those bad things and, and put out a product that people can that's afford. That's the utopian goal. I think the other thing I see that's a big challenge is like, traditionally legacy cultivators, not really good at uh, establishing a fair contract for themselves. You know, really good people, great intentions, really talented, and then they just get so excited about this opportunity to, to go legit, and they get railroaded by their contract. And they didn't even realize it until like two or three years into the deal and this thing's been signed for a while. Yeah, I mean, we can actually speak that. The reason we came to the West Coast is because we didn't want to catch a 10-year charge on the East Coast. I mean, we would tell people, we just wanted to be able to go to work like normal and not take a different route park out front, right? Sure. Like just be a normal, per credit, credit would be an amazing thing, right? So we're just still in that normalization process in my opinion, but that was the whole reason for us wanting to come to the West Coast so that we could do what we were passionate about and 
and be a normal human being in the you know in the United States. Growing up on the East Coast, because that's the three of us. You grew up here, so you have a different perspective on things. But it's such a like a fresh breath. I remember being like such a fresh breath of air. I got to Colorado and I was like, oh, you know, they're pretty lax about this. Oh, you smell a little bit of weed around like in public. People are talking a little bit about it in public because everything was so hush. And it's literally the whole thing's been flipped on its head. And it's like the further you traveled west, it was like, it's like, like, this is real. Like I remember the yeah. first time coming out to California and just being like, everybody grows weed. Yeah. It seemed like everyone in their backyard had a little something going yeah. on in our neighborhood. Yeah. Uh, and the sky isn't falling. No, it's and everything amazing. everything was fine. It was it wasn't a big deal. Yeah, I mean, I remember specifically 2015 in Los Angeles. There was a sesh every single day. Mm-hmm. You could go to an event with pounds on card tables every single day of the week. It was just, to us, it was amazing. We were like, oh my God, we found the promised land. There's, we're standing in a room, right, we're standing in a warehouse right now and there's a thousand pounds here. Like, you know, everybody had a couple sure. pounds and it's just, it was amazing. It just, it's been that acceptance since the 90s that has just shaped California and the West Coast into just something completely different from the East Coast prohibition. Like, literally, East Coast, people were catching 10-year charges in Florida when we left for you know, having a, a spare bedroom with 20 plants in it. It's crazy. Yeah, or a small amount. I mean, personal consumption, yeah. a it, tiny amount. I've watched it, good it friends ha- growing up. to me during my senior year of college, oh. coming back from Jacksonville, Florida, to Gainesville, to University of Florida from a Monday night football Jag Steelers game. I'd smoke before I left, so I wasn't actually smoking in my car, but I'm sure it smelled like it. Sure. Got pulled over for speeding. I had a nug and a glass bowl and told them, I'm, I'm a UF senior. I've got a final tomorrow. I'm graduating in like three weeks. And they arrested me, made me spend the night in jail. Had to bail out in time to go to my final at nine o'clock in the morning. Ended up getting a hundred hours of community service and a a misdemeanor deferment program for literally a gram and a glass pipe. It's, it was just different times. (laughs) And that's what like, I think like an investor just will never understand unless they had that same experience. And that's that grit. It's like, I'll do anything for this plant. And a lot of people give up easy in this space. We saw a lot of giving up this past year in California. Well, that's it. But after a bloodbath, it's been an absolute. Well, when your state doesn't set you up for success. Oh, the state is just. And the local municipalities and counties have their hands out left and right. California had the opportunity to show the entire world how to correctly bring cannabis to the to mainstream. They had that opportunity. And greed fumbled it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. They they should have been the last, the, the the first in investor, the last to cash out, and they're the opposite. They're the last in investor I mean, and the first one to cash yeah. out from everybody before anybody gets even cost of goods, the reali- less any profits. <laughs> the reality of it is, if you're looking at it from a federal standpoint, California is a bigger partner with every illegal, federally illegal cannabis company than anybody else because they bring in we bring in what five billion total over one billion, well, it's got dropped under a billion, but a billion dollars in taxes. They don't give a shit how bad we're doing. They still get a billion dollars a year out of us. They really don't care. It's sad because they, Prop 64, I truly believe Prop 64 only passed because they were going to A, expunge records, right? That was a big thing. That's it. Actually, the only good thing from Prop 64 was actually reducing felonies down to misdemeanors and just getting rid of misdemeanors. That's the only good thing from Prop 64. But if they would have adhered to the small farm like they promised. I mean, they promised, Prop 64 promised a cottage industry. We, you know, they even said to us, we know that all you guys put your life on the line, your freedom on the line for years to get here. And when we're gonna legalize, we're gonna, we're gonna keep out all the big 
operations for the first five years, and they didn't do that. And that well, completely it, ruined the California market. The funny thing with all the Glasshouse talk lately is they shouldn't even be in existence yet. Yeah. The sunsetting shouldn't have happened until November of this, yeah, year. this year. And I, I joke with people, I'm like, if Glasshouse looked at the California market right now and was considering getting into the California market, yeah. would they? <laughs> Nobody big. Probably like. not. But since they already have the amount of canopy they do and they already have what invested, they're going to stick. But yeah. I don't think they'd make the same decision looking at the market five years in as starting out right from the beginning, getting a leg up on every single person over scale. I mean, just think about how different it would be, right? We, you wouldn't have these monolithic grows putting out tons. You'd, you'd have small farms putting out hundreds of pounds a year, not that. And then you wouldn't have the big distros. Right. Because they, there wouldn't be the big farms to service. It would have been so much of a different. It would have been so much of a small farming te uh, model more rather than this just more creativity, more innovation, more, more product diversity. Basically, California did to cannabis what they did to agriculture, big ag. Yeah. Right. They just turned it into just this massive farm field project rather than what it should have been, which was a small cottage, a cottage industry that catered locally. Right. I'm curious, what states do you think have done a good job? I mean, I, and from my experience, Maine has a good cottage industry. Maine they does put have out good a lot weed. of fire. It's going to be your small ones, mm -hmm. right? So New York followed California, right? Um, Florida is great for the companies. It's horrible for the patients. You know, a forced monopoly and forced vertical integration. Florida is a perfect example of why that's not a good thing. Um, Missouri's doing pretty well. They have lower taxes. Their licensing process wasn't as open as I would have liked to have seen it be, but their taxes are low. But yeah, it's going to be the small. Uh, Ver I think Vermont, Connecticut are doing. Connecticut. Connecticut's allowed. got four active licenses, and there's another 22 that are in limbo. They're not social equity, but there's something like a craft grow license. Again, the issue: only one of them that I was told recently has actually like broken dirt, and they're all just they they can't raise capital. Yeah. And when they do raise capital, those capital people take it over, and now it's no longer a small business. It's capitally funded, and they tell them what to do well, because they now run it. Their problem is having enough population to yeah. sustain businesses. Yeah. Like but th those states only have a couple of million people at the most. I remember when we were operating down in Salinas, we did some math, and it was like, well, wait a minute. Like, our farm plus four other farms just down the street the same size can supply the whole state of California. And it was kind of like an oh shit moment. But that being said, to me, all this is somewhat of a math equation. Like, you've got population, you've got some percentage of them that are, like, maybe if it's medical accepted users or medical licenses, or we can assume this many people enjoy recreational. It seems like you could figure out, like, okay, because I, I am actually an advocate for limited license states, just not hyper-limited license states that have ridiculous... I mean, you don't want 20 licenses in Barriers a, to a entry, state. you so, know? So you mean they should have actually taken into account supply and demand and that <laughs> equation when they were forming the laws and the framework Basic that we business. were going to operate under? Who are these people and how are they in these positions and how come it, it's, it shouldn't be as difficult? Like, you shouldn't just blow everything up. And it, maybe it's just a greed thing where they're like... These people are going to apply, there'll be a bloodbath, the strong will survive, the weak will go out. But either way, we're going to get paid the whole time. That's actually, I, that's how I believe California views it right now. I really do. It's really sad. Yeah, I've always been torn between the whole free market states like Oregon and Oklahoma, where they just have unlimited licenses and let the strong survive. To me, that allows people the opportunity to get into an industry when they haven't had a chance to. However, I've seen people you know, bank their life savings on this. Like in Oklahoma, 2,500 bucks for a license. Mom and pop devote their life savings thinking they're gonna make a ton of money and it ends in ruin. You know, part of me 
likes the concept of that market, but I, it's hard for me to find a middle ground. I do yeah. think limiting production is the right way to do it by canopy square feet, by population, but what is that metric? What is that? Well, I, I liked Oklahoma's free market approach to it, but they didn't put in any structure to actually maintain the industry and the integrity of the industry. And it just became, oh, I can just move from California to Oklahoma and continue what I was trapping from there to the East Coast and cut my cost by they did a, a ten. terrible job and, enforcing. and make it appear yeah. to be legal right. and how long is it going to take for them to figure out i'm not legal yeah. if they even do because there's ways to manipulate all of that so i'm not a fan of the police i'm not a fan of enforcement but if you're going to set it up like that you need to protect i mean it's and somewhat same thing here in california they didn't protect the people that put the money in for licenses they didn't give them a, a feeling of safety a feeling of security of of what they were trying to do we need something in between oklahoma and california in my opinion, right? So California got got a couple things right. Oklahoma, the free market's great. I, I totally agree with that. Letting the good companies rise. We're, we're in this weird place where they, even the big cannabis companies, in my opinion, don't mean anything to, to anybody, all right? So the True Leaves and the Care Leaves, they're billion dollar companies, but what are they to Philip Morris? They're, they're nothing, they're absolutely nothing. So. Part of me thinks that they, they they just want everybody to stick their head up. First movers and people that stuck their head up get their head whacked off. And then somebody's going to fill the void, right? So if people go out of business or it gets consolidated, there's going to be some type of void being filled. So we're in just this really weird phase of cannabis history right now where it's quasi-legal. Yeah. The art of the pivot, right? Yeah. Is that what you were talking about That's earlier? I, I mean, I've heard good stories in California even today while I was visiting. And it was essentially... Uh, grower picked up a distressed asset and they didn't know what they were doing you know got the van redo it all but this team would have had to spend three or four times the amount of money and they would have lost traction to even getting to market because that's where i saw a lot of people in california get shot in the foot was somewhere between local municipality regulations with building codes fire marshals and then ccc california code check i remember we got our comments back from California code check and I got 87 comments on a new build greenhouse and one of them was 87 one of them was the greenhouse has to be solar ready meaning that they wanted us to have the ability to put solar panels on our greenhouse and I had to educate them I was like it's a solar it is the epitome of solar ready <laughs> but that's where it was and this was 2016 and they want you to put panels up to block the sun. That's when you pull out the Princess Bride meme. I don't think that word means what you think it means. <laughs> <laughs> but, I, you know, it is nice to hear stories of people who understand the art of pivoting that come from a long background of being scrappy and surviving. And, you know, it's nice to hear, like, while I was in California this trip, to hear about someone who's actually, you know, already has an existing farm, acquired a distressed asset at a reasonable rate, is turning it around and is selling all their own product legitimately through, yep. their, through their own brand. Yep. So, you know, for every gloomy story, there are people that are right. navigating these waters and a lot of them aren't thriving, but they're surviving. And I think right now it's that time where it's like, we just need to stay afloat. Surviving. the green side of the grass. Yeah. Surviving right now is, is, is thriving. Right. right. And I look at it too, though, even if you're not making money, if you're still you're not making a lot of money. Even if you're still in it, you're building a brand that's going to have value in the future. 
So even if you're not banking the way you'd want to bank, you're still building towards your future. He said, what did he say? He goes, he's like, it's all about right now, it's all about the three Ps for me. I got to make sure I can handle my payroll, I can got to make sure I can handle my plants, and I got to make sure I got my, my power handled. Yep. Well, that, that's how I see it too, is you have two ways to build value right now in the cannabis industry. You either build an asset, a really good facility that you can prove with data that it can reproducibly you know, hit quality and quantity every run, or you build the brand. You know, and that's the value. Yep. And if you have a good facility, like a good asset value on your facility and a good brand, yep. that's the winning success right now. Yep. Unfortunately, what I see is a lot of people don't have the facility that can produce the quality right now that backs up their brand or vice versa. That You know, it's, it's the dilemma we've dealt with for several years and potential partners and potential opportunities and yeah having the brand, but ha having the consistent product. Him and I debated all the time of not having flour in the market. I'm like, but it's the main thing people are buying. It's the main way to build the brand. We tried to do some white labeling. We tried to do some licensing deals. They, they just didn't work out and they weren't, they didn't stay consistent and it wasn't the quality that we would have put out of our own facility. And so we just did, I, I, if I can't put out a product, I would put out myself. I'm not putting out a product. It's just that simple. The people that I see doing the best in this space will say something generally like what you just said. They're, it'll be like, if we won't smoke it, we won't put it out. Yeah. The people on the other hand who don't smoke or don't they really, don't they don't know, they don't care. It's just a widget again to them and they're shoving this booth CPG. right down the line. We see how well this, it's just a CPG works. It's interesting too, like, you know, this whole like, there was this paradigm shift with the big guys I've noticed. They're now like aware that quality matters. It, but it wasn't the case for many years. It was like, we're the biggest. My, my favorite was the, the story coming out recently about Canada now focusing on the micro licenses. Going from macro to micro. I worked very much in Canada <laughs> up until COVID really, and then we couldn't get in the country anymore. I have never in my life seen more capital wasted. I, if, if you were like an entomologist or you just loved like IPM, it would have been the mecca to study plants. I mean, every bug, every disease, every pest, and then at a million square feet of greenhouse. Yeah, if you ever want to get a, a, a funny read, pull all the financial statements of the big LPs in Canada, and not, all of it's non-GAAP reporting, so it's a really interesting accounting that they put on these financial statements. Some of them have a, a line item called inventory obsolescence. And if you read into this line item on their financial, their income statement, it's basically how much product they burned and destroyed. And I mean, it's millions of pounds. It's ridiculous. I mean, it's ridiculous. It's, it's like yeah. my understanding was they were having so much capital thrown at them that they had to find things to invest it in. And they were just making real. I mean, I, I heard some of the companies up there bought hundreds and thousands of hectares in, in South America and it's just sitting there now. Yeah. I mean, just don't like they had so much money thrown at them that they had to buy shit and they didn't even really know what they were buying. They just it almost just was like they, they didn't get the, the budget. Capital. Yeah, well, if they didn't if they didn't spend it, they wouldn't get any more. I, I can't name names, but I, I knew a gentleman and it, this, this shocked me. He still had his job and he introduced himself to me. He's like, hey, I'm so and so. I'm the guy that made the two hundred and twenty dollar um, mistake acquisition. So this gentleman lost two hundred and twenty million dollars. He didn't lose a fool. He lost. $202 million. And that was his introduction, is I'm that guy. <laughs> yeah, and he still had a job. I, it's amazing, isn't it? This one group spent about $860 million while I was there in a couple years. And the only reason that I, I was able to work with them is they gave me some of their product to try and they wanted to get my opinion on it. And, I, and you know, the next day we had a meeting 
and they were, they were so excited to see like what we thought of their cannabis because we came from Colorado and California on my team. And I said, with all due respect, I didn't try it. <laughs> and they were like so perplexed. Like, you tell they were like they didn't. They were like, why? And I was like, I'm very particular about what I put in my body, and there is noticeable botrytis and remediation and still botrytis and i'm just i'm not doing that and it was that comment in this big executive corporate all these suits they were like we need these people yeah they did <laughs> and at the time i knew that we had bitten off way more than we could handle you're talking about a million plus square feet of um, controlled environment agriculture and all brand new stuff which was poorly commissioned brand new teams i watched hyper growth i watched a team grow from 200 people to 800 people in seven months. So you can just imagine trying to train. I mean, would not even want to. Yeah. I, I think the numbers I've heard most recently is, is it 8 billion that Canopy has lost overall? 8, eight billion with a B? That's insane. That's eight years of tax that the state of California makes that one company burned. People like, I, Billion, it is a hard number to fathom. A thousand I think at millions times. is a lot. Yeah, like a, a million <laughs> seconds is 12 days. Uh, a billion seconds is 32 years. Yeah. And people don't understand the difference between millions and billions a lot. It's Our hope is that we don't see these same mistakes in Europe and the rest yeah. of the country. I don't think you will. I really don't. They're taking think... a different approach. They're, it seems like the government's going to have a stronger I don't hand think Canada things. would be rep. I don't think Canada would ever happen again. It was a combination of... Everybody thinking that money still grew on weed trees. We were at a time when everybody was trying to invest into it and they had just, they had done their federal legalization. So people viewed, I actually was telling people Canada's gonna eat everybody's lunch. They're the ones importing into, they have import contracts in Germany years and years ago. Yep. I said, how can we compete with that? We can't even, we can't even sell outside our state. These guys are shipping it over to Europe. And so five years ago, I was, I was warning that Canada's going to eat our lunch. And somewhere in there, they just screwed it all. <laughs> Evaluations were based off of what you could produce, not what you could sell. And then the Canadian government, they limited the outlets internally. So there just wasn't a lot of outlets. So the bottleneck was massive. Yeah. Well, Crazy. my dad's an accountant. He's a CPA. And he and I, he's taught me quite a bit about how to run, you know, run a financial statement for a cultivation business, my businesses, right? Like, how do I actually account for my business and know my numbers? And we've looked at a lot of these Canadian businesses together. Like, he finds it interesting. And I think that's one of the reasons that they failed with these evaluations is very creative accounting to investors in a way that wasn't illegal, but was semi-fraudulent. There's a guy on LinkedIn that used to work. Do you remember his name? He used to work for like Bacardi. So he yeah. understands products and distribution. He tears every- about Rob McPherson? Yeah, Rob McPherson tears every single large Canadian company a new ass every day on LinkedIn and does it by the numbers. He absolutely, Linton, dude, he will not stop on Linton. He is, this guy has just buried Linton on LinkedIn. Like if anybody ever hires Linton again, I'll be absolutely amazed. This guy has just <laughs> completely laid out how this guy is the worst CEO of a cannabis company ever possibly. It's wild to me. That person will for sure get hired somewhere else. I know they will. <laughs> That's the worst part about some of this space is like somehow like the crooked well, just they, weasel they, they into they gave, another They initially gave him control of a fucking spec. Yeah. <laughs> hey, well, you don't need to tell us what you're doing with this money. We're just going to give it to you. Yeah. I mean, they, they've they, lost they, I billions. They, I think Linton burned through $4 billion in, in, while he was there. Yeah. Half of their debt 
was from him originally running the company. It's crazy. What can the United States learn from some of this? Like we kind of got ahead of Canada and a lot of our legalization at a state level. Canada kind of took it to the federal level and was a really good example for me and all of us to learn from. And I think one of the lessons I took away from Canada's federal legalization was the needs for standards and better regulations. I think that standard reporting, standard KPIs and metrics coming out of these cultivation businesses, uh, a little bit, another layer of legitimacy. And that doesn't mean we have to change any of our culture or how we grow this plant, but I think it's a way for us legacy guys to protect ourselves and a way for us to gauge our performance, but also a way to protect ourselves and grow from a corporate level, I guess, too. Like, I think standards and regulations are going to be really important for a successful, you know, federal legalization here in the States. No, I agree with you. The question is who sets them? Well, that's the tricky part. I I think that's why, personally, I'm I'm pretty involved in it. I I think it's an important, it's important to have voices in these meetings because I sat in these ASTM meetings and all of these large standards and organizations, you know, nonprofits and whatever, and there are some people who get it and there's a lot of people who don't, right. you well, know, and, and I think it's important that people from the legacy market aren't afraid to speak up and, and share a little bit. It's so counterintuitive to what we know, um, keep everything in, keep it secret. But unless we share a little bit and have a voice in these standards and regulations, then it's not going to be regulated correctly. Well, no, I agree with you. And, and the problem is the path that we're going down is putting us further and further away from being able to influence those regulations. We've already seen it. I mean, the fact that the, the things that they've done on a regulation and state levels doesn't make any sense. If they'd asked anybody who'd been in this industry for any length of time, they wouldn't have done that. But the problem now is now we've got this consolidation going and the only people with the money to even talk to lobbyists, to talk to congressmen and congresswomen and senators and things, are the bigger companies. So what's happening now is we've got companies like Trueleaf and Cureleaf that are influencing regulation. And of course they're influencing it into hyper-focused, as many, as few licenses as possible. Let us handle it. We're the professionals now. Let us run all the dispensaries. So we're, we're going down a very bad path to where we're not gonna even be able to participate because we're gonna be written completely out. Well, I think what's interesting too is this industry has developed somewhat backwards to a lot of other agricultural type industries. It typically starts at the academic level and in universities where crop registration, you know, agronomic traits are defined, KPIs are defined, and then industry evolves around academia. Mm -hmm. And instead we are completely backwards. Industry is innovating in a bubble, in a silo, and academia is trying to legitimize some of what's coming out of our industry. And the politicians and regulators are all just confused because they don't know who to trust and what information is correct. They're doing what they're told by the donors. That's and the donors are the big companies with money. Yeah. Um, Jeff has Follow a phrase. the money, he used to, right? He used to say that, uh, what would you say about the industry? What about California? Well, no, about the cannabis industry in general. It's, it's new, but it's a- it's Oh, that's what I, I usually said it more about California, that we're an adult baby. We've been in existence for 25 years, but we're still an infant yeah. in, in the scheme of things. And we, and we don't understand things. And we just throw tantrums and, and sling shit at the wall. Yeah, you know, and then, and then let me look at the debacle in New York. My God, they, they let these guys grow. They let the hemp, the 200 hemp growers got to grow. And then they have what? There's still only 13 dispensaries to sell it to. And we're a year after their harvest. They harvested in 2022. Meanwhile, there's yeah. three dispensaries on every corner that are, you know, 
<laughs> bodega. Yeah. Every bodega has one. Yeah. Oh, but we saw that because they forced them into the, the pact with the, the company that was going to raise $200 million for all the retail locations. And then mysteriously, they can't raise $150 million in New York City yeah. Somebody for else? real estate development. Yeah. Like, how much of a drop in the bucket in terms of New York real estate development is that? <laughs> I, I honestly can't believe, after watching what California did, I can't believe that, that New York dropped the ball the way they did. It's just unbelievable to me. I don't know how much of it's dropping the ball and how much of it's intentional by yeah. people behind the scenes with their own motives. Well, look how Follow much money, money California's making. New York wants to make that revenue too. Yeah. You know, I mean, they're probably doing it on purpose. I don't know. Yeah, follow the money. It's always gets you to some version of the truth. Yeah. Well, I know this could be the never ending conversation, <laughs> yeah. but I'm getting a little chilly. I'm yeah. getting a little hungry. Can but I ask one last question? Oh, always. What's next for Beard Bros Farms? Media expansion. We've actually been toying with um, maybe getting some investment to expand our media. So we're, we're, we're hoping to expand the media. Um, we are expanding um, uh, our product line, which currently is, uh, is RSO. We're going to expand that into a few states. I guess I can drop that on yeah, here. We're going to be launching in Massachusetts in August. More than likely launching in Missouri by September. We have a couple other states that aren't signed yet, but... Uh, We've realized that California's cannabis industry got so screwed by Prop 64 that the real value of being a brand and a cultivator in California is that you can take it to other states that need it. You is can, out, outside the state. You can bring that culture and, and, that, and that type of legacy mentality of, of passion for the plant to other places that didn't have it. So, Awesome. Cool. Well, thank you, bros. I'm excited it's to been watch a it. real pleasure. We appreciate you having Absolutely. us out. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks for listening to Cultivation Elevated. Full show notes for each episode, which includes a summary, key takeaways, quotes, and any resources mentioned, are available at pithorticulture.com forward slash podcast. Be sure to follow and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you're enjoying the content and getting value from these episodes, please leave us a rating and a review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash cultivation elevated. We'll be sure to read these out on future episodes.